having a corp, corp, big foreign uh, corporate influence on Canadian elections is something that is anti-democratic. You know, the idea that every every uh, jurisdiction, the people there should be able to determine their own destiny, free from from influence by um, by foreign uh, uh, foreign groups. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. On this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Gordon Laxer, political economist, professor uh, emeritus at the University of Alberta, founding director and former head of Parkland Institute from 1996 to 2011, and co-author of a new study, Posing as Canadian, How Big Foreign Oil Captures Canadian Energy and Climate Policy. Welcome to the interview, Gordon. Great to be here. Well, look, this is going to be an interesting conversation because you touch on a number of issues in this study that I've been involved in as a journalist. In fact, you cite me a few times, so thank you very much for that. But I'm also going to push back a little bit on some of your central thesis. And so I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation this time around. Uh, so maybe let's start. And why don't you uh, do a brief overview of the central argument of your, of your paper, please? Yes, well, we saw that in, um, uh, the, uh, in 2019, when the uh, UCP government was elected, Kenny promised to uh, 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 develop a, a public inquiry and a war room to um, counter what he called anti-Alberta uh, um, campaigns, uh, tar sand campaign that was uh, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, U.S. foundations, and uh, so he they they there was this there was an inquiry, the Allen inquiry, uh, and they. It, it came out in October and it found that there was only a tiny trickle of money. In fact, the annual trickle of money going into uh, the uh, that he found going into uh, campaigns to uh, stop uh, landlock Alberta oil, as they called it, was less than the actual inquiry itself. So it, it was not a huge amount of money. Why would you have a public inquiry on such a small trickle? So but the interesting thing is that when uh, Alberta Energy Minister um, said that, um, uh, announced the Allen report. She said that it's a real concern when uh, foreign uh, funds are coming in and, and interfering with Canadian elections. I totally agree with that. But what they did is they, you know, they targeted, the public inquiry targeted a molehill and missed the Rockies because right under their nose, was a much bigger source of foreign funded uh, influence in, in Alberta and Canadian politics, and that was big foreign oil. And the oil industry in Canada is, is uh, dominated, overwhelmingly dominated by big foreign oil. Uh, so I, I went into the study, I looked at uh, CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. It, uh, it's the apex uh, oil lobby group in Canada. I looked at their uh, 48 uh, board members that, that represent corporations, and I found out, and so I looked at how much uh, uh, they were foreign owned. Um, and foreign owned means foreign funded. That, that's exactly what foreign owned means. So um, we found that um, 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 30 of the 48 
were confirmed as either fully foreign-owned or majority foreign-owned. Seven were likely foreign-owned, so over just a little over three quarters were were foreign-funded, uh, foreign-owned uh, corporations. So it's a bit rich for CAP to be talking about foreign funding. In fact, it was it was CAP uh, uh, Tim McMillan uh, two months before the Alberta election. Um, he uh, said that we have been the victims of a very well-orchestrated, well-planned, foreign-funded attack on Canadian infrastructure, pipelines, LNG facilities. Six weeks later, um, Jason Kenney, the leader of the UCP, uh, took up uh, the, the call of, of uh, McMillan of CAP, and they said that they, just before the election, he announced that if elected, he would launch this inquiry. So it's uh, but so I would decide. Well, okay, look, they're they're interested in foreign funding. How come um, they didn't look at the biggest source, um, which is way more influential? I mean, the CAP meets with the government perpetually, and so they have a lot of influence. Well, no, look, there's a lot to unpack here, and a lot. Uh, I'm going to quibble with a number of uh, of your points. Go, though. I'm I'm sympathetic to the general thrust of your argument. I think that there needs to be some clarification around here. And unfortunately, these are uh, some of the, this is a story that I've reported on extensively over the last, well, probably since uh, 2013, 2014. But so let's get in, let's get into this. First of all, let's talk about the what foreign funded actually means. And this is an area where I myself have not done a lot of research so, or a lot of reporting. So I've relied on uh, uh, some of uh, 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 col uh, colleagues, uh, people like Max Fawcett, who's a journalist colleague and some other uh, economists and so on, who have been commenting on social media about this. So their point is that when we talk about foreign owned, what we're talking about is companies uh, that are that have investment from foreign uh, mutual funds uh, and particularly large institutional investors who don't it's not like we're having you know the Koch brothers are sitting on the boards of Suncorn Sonovas and and uh, CNRL and uh, so on uh, to influence their their policy so basically, the argument is that this is the kind of the foreign capital we're talking about is by and large in the main, the kind of passive in, in, uh, capital investment that comes with large institutional investors. How do you respond to that? Well, there's, there's different kinds of ownership within the, the oil industry and the oil corporations. Some of it's institutional, some of it's by individuals, uh, but, in the 2016 US presidential election, there was a lot of talk about Russian interference and uh, in that election. And the response of the Canadian government was to, to bring in in 2018 the, to the Election Modernization Act, which forbade foreign entities from um, election spending in Canada and intruding in our elections. And they included corporations. So they said foreign corporations, they are banned from influencing our elections. But they, it, they, it was just uh, foreign corporations who were headquartered abroad. If they were the same foreign head, uh, if the, the corporation uh, set up the uh, headquarters in, in Calgary, that was fine. And that is a huge loophole. 
there is a movement in the United States right now. There's a bill uh, been brought to the House of uh, Representatives three days ago uh, by a Democrat from uh, Maryland to uh, ban foreign uh, corporation funding in elections to, to close that loophole. And there's a very good chance that that's going to pass. So this is the idea that it should be the citizens in a country determine what happens in that country. There should not be foreign money and especially foreign big foreign corporate money interfering with that election. The, the, the thing about uh, institutional ownership or different kinds of ownership, if you are and, and the, the uh, securities, uh, uh, the SEC in the United States said that if you own 1% of a corporation, you can then speak to the managers. And the, corp and the managers are, that is part of their fiduciary duty is to represent the owners. And if those owners are foreign, um, that those are not Canadian citizens and they should not having a say in our elections. Okay, let's address this issue now because I have a bit of a unique situ uh, situation here in that uh, I spent five years where I was uh, sort of took a, a bit of a leave from my media and communications career and, and helped out a Calgary company in the oil and gas industry, open up distribution networks across North America. And I've had the uh, 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 unique experience of uh, dealing with uh, oil companies uh, all throughout Texas, uh, California, Wyoming, North Dakota, Alberta, Saskatchewan, you name it. I've, I've been, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And my impression of all of that, and then of course, uh, uh, covering the Canadian uh, industry uh, as, a, as a journalist is culturally, they're all the same. The, the interests you talk about, uh, you, if you take a CEO uh, in a Calgary boardroom, uh, politically and culturally, there will be very diff little difference between one in Midland, Texas, or Bakersfield, California, or Gillette, Wyoming. They literally share most of the same beliefs, the same political outlook. And so if we're talking about influencing government policy around climate and energy, uh, I would argue that in fact, it doesn't make any difference uh, whether they've got the star, you know, the, the uh, <clears throat> Star Spangled Banner on their uh, sleeve or the, Can or the Canadian flag, uh, because they'll have the same outlook uh in terms of how the kind of policy framework they want to they intend to operate in and the the political parties that they're going to support so that's my counter to to your argument gordon you're probably right that their outlook is very similar in calgary compared to what it is in texas and with other oil men i i agree with that but if if the uh the, uh, oil people in Calgary uh, managers of companies as a Canadian citizen, they have the perfect right to uh, to um, uh, participate in uh, Canadian elections, just like any other Canadian citizen. But if they are, but they have a lot more weight and heft if they are, if they had a big oil company and they are foreign financed, they would have a lot more influence than just the everyday uh, Canadian. And and it's that that having a corp, corp, big foreign uh, corporate influence on Canadian elections is something that is anti-democratic. You know the idea that every every uh, jurisdiction 
the people there should be able to determine their own destiny free from from influence by um, by foreign uh, uh, foreign groups but i haven't seen you prove the fact that the foreign ownership leads to out new influence uh, or the introduction of new ideas that are not in canada's best interests i think you're assuming it, it you're inferring it but i don't think you've proved it and and th so that's part of my problem and i want to relay a couple of stories that I think makes my argument, uh, so bear with me here. In 20, beginning in September of 2014, and uh, folks who want a more fulsome uh, description of this story can go to uh, uh, energy.media uh, on our website, and I've done a number of columns on it. So in 20, September of 2014, five oil and gas, oil sand CEOs, met with the executive directors of five environmental groups. And, and these were some of the biggest uh, names. Uh, in, in fact, they were the biggest names. There was Shell and uh, CNRL and uh, Synovus and Suncor. Uh, and so they, and they had, and that meeting was convened at the request of the CEOs because they were getting tired of being lambasted and, and, uh, and tarred with by this uh, international campaign that was supposedly funded by you know foreign uh, foreign charities out of the states, and they wanted peace in the valley. And so over the course of between September and early summer of 2015, they came to a, the, a handshake deal between the CEOs and the executive directors. And here's here's what it was: they uh, the CEOs agreed to support the idea of carbon pricing. They agreed to support methane emission reductions from oil and gas production by 40 to 45%. They agreed to support uh, an oil sands emissions cap of 100 megatons a year. And, and uh, they, uh, they, they basically then went, the, the, the two groups uh, went to then Environment Minister Shannon Phillips of the NDP, a left-leaning government for those, uh, left-leaning party uh, for those who uh, are... Uh, listening in the United States or Europe to our podcast. And they, they said, uh, Madam Minister, here is what we have uh, agreed upon amongst ourselves. And at the, that time, the, the NDP uh, was putting in place its own climate plan, much of which was already uh, looked similar to the handshake agreement. The one difference was the 100 megaton oil sands emission cap that was not in, uh, the, in the government's uh, consideration at that time. And so the government said, okay, if industry and environmental groups are on board with this, we will incorporate that emissions cap into the uh, climate leadership plan, it was called. And when it was announced on November of 2015, the premier stood up at the dais and behind her uh, what were four CEOs uh, of, that were in those meetings uh, supporting that climate leadership plan. And so, and we should, I, this is a really key point. I interviewed Tim McMillan about this and he, and uh, CAP was excluded from those negotiations and very deliberately by those CEOs because they, they knew that there would never be an agreement if CAP was at the table because, you know, too many voices and there was no way to keep, they needed a small group to make this happen. And, and you could, in that interview, uh, Mc, the anger in, in McMillan's voice is palpable. It's, it's obvious. They, and there was a lot of uh, 
pushback. There's a lot, a, a lot of angry reaction uh, uh, against those CEOs because they felt that the CEOs had selfishly committed the entire industry to policy that others didn't support. They didn't support carbon pricing. There's a lot of climate deniers, as you know, Gordon, in, in Calgary and within the industry at that time. And, but nevertheless, that climate leadership plan went through. And then when the Liberals were elected in 2015 federally, they were influenced by the climate leadership plan as well. And the fact that the, well, the CEOs were, were on board with it. And then we see a climate, uh, we see carbon pricing and so on introduced at the, at the federal level here. So I think this, I would argue, I contend to you, sir, that this uh, makes the argument, the cap is not as, as influential and powerful as you have argued in your paper. And then in fact, there are the Canadians within the industry who were happy uh, to come sit down with the environmental groups and have a, and then with the government and play a role supporting climate mitigation policies. So that, there, there's my argument, Gordon, but I'll give you a chance to respond. Sure. Well, that agreement that uh, that the uh, I was in Edmonton at the time of of, of that agreement, uh, uh, and and I was interviewed actually in CBC, uh, and Shannon Phillips, the environment minister, came in right after me. Um, yes, uh, that was a totally ineffectual agreement. It did nothing for climate. Um, this uh, these companies that were that met it may not have been cap, but they were all majority foreign owned companies. Uh, and it is not in the interest. So this cap, we, you talked about 100 uh, megaton uh, cap on emissions, that was permission to grow the emissions by almost 50% because emissions were at 68 megatons. So you, you put on it, you talk about a cap, but it wasn't really a cap, it was just a permission to grow. The, the emissions uh, in the production of oil and gas is the biggest source and fastest growing source of emissions in Canada. And this and the emissions in Canada have not gone down. It's not gone down since Trudeau's been in power the last six years. It didn't come down when the NDP was in in Alberta. So the this was window dressing. And I'm afraid that the NDP got into that. I think they were intimidated by big oil. It was uh, totally ineffectual. It's just window dressing for the oil uh, corporations. It is not in Alberta's interests or Canadians' interests to keep, try to keep the oil industry alive. It is a sunset industry. We have to wind it down. This is what the International Energy Agency says. This is what the... So Canada is the bad boy of the G7 countries. You know, we... So if you look at... Um, uh, the other ones, the, the United States and Japan, their emissions are about the same level as in 1990. And we've been meeting since 1992 in, the, in Rio every year. The international community has been saying we've got to bring down the emissions. The United States and Japan are, are the same where they were in 1990. Uh, the um, um, European Union is down by 25%. Britain is down by over 40%. Where is Canada? Up by 21%. And it's not because Canadians drive differently, heat their homes differently. It's because of the production of oil and gas, and it's for export. Almost all, the great majority of that oil is exported. It's not for Canadian needs. So if we had a real plan, what we would say is, let us phase out exports very quickly so that we can bring the emissions down and let's supply Canadians. Don't import any oil. We can use Newfoundland oil in, in, in the Atlantic Canada 
So this was not a real agreement. And it, and these these corporations you talked to, maybe it, maybe it wasn't CAP, but these were foreign funded corporations which had inordinate influence. And they were able to intimidate a government which was supposed to be left-wing, which was supposed to be social democratic. Of course, the, the, the interest of the NDP was in the workers and their communities, not the oil companies, but it came out with a totally ineffectual uh, policy and it, it helped to justify the expansion of the oil industry in Alberta. And we have to, we are in a climate emergency. We have to bring down emissions and this is our biggest and fastest growing source. So, the, uh, you know, it should be Canadian citizens doing this, not big foreign money um, making decisions uh, and influencing Canadian politics. Well, let's point out for our, uh, American and other uh, listeners that uh, the oil and gas industry in Canada is 26% uh, of national emissions. Gordon is exactly right on um, um, that it is the biggest source. And it, up until just a couple of years ago, I think three, four years ago, it plateaued. But up until then, it was absolutely growing because supply was, was growing. And no question about that. The oil sands alone is 11% of national emissions, again, because supply has grown rapidly since about, the, the mid, uh, about 2005, roughly. And so there's no, quite, there's no question about that. Now, I will, take, uh, I, I will push back a little bit against your argument that the climate leadership plan was ineffectual, it was window dressing. It was considered at the time to be very uh, uh, robust uh, and uh, probably outside of California, uh, the more interventionist and aggressive uh, of the jurisdictions in North America. And it was perceived as what was doable at the time. And I remember talking to Ed Whittingham, who was one of the uh, environmental group uh, executive directors, who said, this is, the, this is the start. We had to start someplace. This is what we could get to. And then it'll get tougher over time because we all recognize that climate has to, that emissions have to go down because of the, the climate emergency. So, but then let's talk about what happened uh, after the climate leadership plan was introduced in 2015. That basically set off a civil war within the industry because the hardliners that, who basically represent the politics you're talking about, the, 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 the Jason Kenney supporters, and again, for uh, listeners outside of Canada, uh, the United Conservative Party uh, was a, uh, was an amalgamation between a merger, if you will, between uh, two right wing, right of center parties in Canada or in Alberta. And Jason Kenney, who's a former federal conservative cabinet minister, came in in 2017 and sort of won the leadership and then began this very, very uh, populist kind of campaign, very Trump like. Uh, I remember writing columns at the time saying he was essentially Canada's Trump. And, and pushing back against the, any kind of uh, climate policy and any kind of pushing hard against the, the liberal government in, in Ottawa. So that had a lot to do with, and then of course the UCP won the, elect, the, the provincial election in Alberta in 2019 and now forms, forms government. But I would argue, Gordon, that since uh, the uh, Trudeau liberals have brought in ever uh, more uh, stringent climate policies. Uh, the last update that came out about a year ago, uh, climate experts, uh, uh, I think, were pretty much consistent across the country saying that Canada now has a suite of 
policies that will get us to net zero by 2050. There have been even more promises since then, and we're, we're seeing now in the last federal election in, uh, in October, the, uh, the Liberals promised a, an immediate cap on uh, oil and gas emissions and then immediate reductions thereafter, every year thereafter. And, and we're seeing more of that all the, all the time, it, it, and we're seeing the, the implementation of it. So, and CAP lobbied against that. You're absolutely correct that they, they tried really hard to unseat that, and I would argue failed. And this shows that CAP is not as strong as you have argued in, in your paper. Now, I've rambled a little bit here, and I, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. Okay. Uh, I uh, find that the, um, the Liberal government policy is very weak. It's environmental policy. I am not impressed with it. It, it aims mainly at the consumers. That's what the carbon tax is about. All and the Alberta, uh, the NDP government, and uh, the, the, there was a, the car the carbon tax. It was aimed at consumers. So what was really ineffectual back in, in 2015 was that they the the uh, the plan that the Notley government uh, endorsed aimed at the 28 percent of emissions that, that came from coal fired electricity production and from drivers uh, or, uh, from drivers, people who consume electricity. So it left the 44% of emissions from Alberta that was from the production of oil and gas. If we bring us up to the present, the federal government's its main policy is on consumption. But in, you know, we have to look at the supply side. And the, uh, the greatest source of emissions is from the production of oil and gas. I'm not impressed with the emissions. If they start talking about cutting production, then I would agree that it is a real policy. There's too many fudges with emissions. What the oil industry wants is that they want the public, the taxpayer, to pay to, to, for carbon. They want to you know, produce as much oil and make as much profit as possible and for the public to pay for carbon capture so that they, the, uh, the oil companies can say, you know, we're reducing emissions. And this is not a policy which, which uh, Canadians need, and it is not effective. Um, and so that Canada will continue to be the environmental bad boy of, G, of G7 uh, if we keep with these policies. Now, this is a point on which you and I agree, because the uh, earlier this summer, uh, the oil sands companies launched the uh, net zero by 2050 uh, pathways initiative. And out of the, uh, in order to get to uh, net zero by 2050, uh, fifth, uh, carbon capture and storage would be approximately 50 to 60% of that emissions reduction. And the, uh, the two uh, CEOs, uh, 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 Two of the biggest companies, Mark Little from Suncor and Alex Poorbay from Synovus, were quoted in the uh, the media as saying that uh, the total cost of that project would be about 70, 75 billion dollars. That's not even half of, of oil and gas emissions in Canada. So that's just the oil sense. And they and they said we expect governments to pick up two thirds of that. So $50 billion of that. And in fact, Jason Kenney, Alberta Premier, has already been demanding of the federal government that, that uh, an immediate $32 billion to invest in the carbon capture and storage. And uh, we have, uh, Energy Media has, and, uh, and I have taken a position that there no money be given at all to the oil sands 
without two things. Uh, first of all, a post-combustion strategy. There, there is a possibility, uh, we'll know in a couple of years if it's commercial, to turn bitumen into the uh, feedstock for carbon fiber manufacturing. So stop burning it, start making stuff with it. It actually has value as feedstock for, uh, for manufacturing. So that's one, a post, we stop burning at some point in the near future and we start making stuff out of bitumen. And secondly, there are huge environmental liabilities tied to the oil sands. 37 uh, tailings ponds in Northern Alberta with 1.4 trillion liters of toxic waste in them. And the industry has been ineffectual over the last four decades of reclaiming these as they're supposed to. And the remediation costs are estimated to be 31 billion and they only have less than a billion on security with the Alberta government. So with, if those two things were in place and there, then there was a long-term future for this, for this industry as a, uh, a supplier of, of feedstock for material manufacturing, then I think you could at least make an argument that the federal government and the Alberta government might want to step in. And because after all, the people own the resource. They, the, in the Canadian constitution, the provinces are responsible for, uh, we, uh, they, own the, uh, they own the mineral rights. So I, I would argue that there is a case to be made, but it has lots of conditions to it. And if those conditions aren't met, then the federal government in particular should should not give in to these requests and so far actually has not given to these requests. Well, anyway, what's your take, Gordon? Uh, the oil companies love to talk uh, a good game on climate. And I agree that some of them talk a better game than others. Uh, some of them are deniers and some of them would just, uh, you want to poo poo the whole thing. And others say they want to engage. And every day that they engage in talks, they are making tens of millions of dollars emitting, and they will just drag this out because the game, the whole business plan of the oil industry is to make money. Of course, it's, that's what that's what it is. And to make, even if it hurts the, the climate, it, it, it endangers life on the planet. It, it doesn't deal with climate today. That is what their business um, uh, business uh, agenda is. So the um, the the you know these uh, a much better plan than carbon capture is we should be winding down the production. We've got other forms of energy that we can produce. We've also got to cut the, the uh, consumption of, of Canadians. We we actually consume twice as much energy per capita as they do in Western Europe and in places like the Nordic countries, which are equally cold and have huge distances. Uh, we should be planting trees the, 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 uh, to, uh, to uh, capture the carbon which not only helps um, with capturing carbon, but helps with uh, wildlife and biological diversity. And we should be doing it on a far larger scale than the Canadian government has, has talked about. We, the, um, there was a study done uh, in Switzerland a couple of years ago that said we needed to plant the in the world at one trillion trees. Uh, the Canadian government said we will plant two billion. That, um, if we are 7%, Canada is 7% of the world's landmass. So we should be planting about 7% of the world's trees, and that would be 70 billion trees. And so that would be 35 times as many trees as the Canadian government is talking about. We're not serious. Look, if we were serious, 
we would have a World War II scale. You know, when the, when the World War II came along, Hitler was a menace. What did we say? Well, we don't have the money to do that. We'll do a few mitigation things. No, we put every single resource that we possibly could into it. We had 11 million people and we put over a million soldiers overseas. Um, and we didn't say, like people keep hearing in Canada, we're just a small country. We only have this, you know, uh, we only do a small percentage of the emissions, one and a half percent. We, you know, we, we didn't say we're a small country, so we're not going to go out and go and, and try and fight Hitler. Uh, we should be combining with other people. So we, the, we're not serious. The government is not serious about doing, uh, uh, you know, having a real climate plan. This, if you take it as a real emergency, and look, we saw all that stuff, floods in BC, fires. You saw that, that town of Lytton in BC that had the, you know, the, it, it burst into flames because it got up to almost to 50 degrees Celsius. Um, so this is a real emergency and we're not treating it that way. And so we're just coddling the oil industry and the oil industry does have that influence. They met uh, when COVID came, most people were went, uh, or at least a lot of workers worked out of their home. The oil industry was lobbying on the same level. They set up a secret committee with the federal government um, they, they, they didn't, the federal government didn't set up a committee with the environmentalists. And so the oil industry, CAP and, and other uh, uh, oil companies were on that, all of them foreign owned, um, foreign financed. And they, and so the government was saying this, the, I'm sitting with the, the oil industry in Canada, they, they, they speak, speak for us. And they were delaying things, they were getting subsidies, they were paying for the liabilities to clean up the liabilities. Instead of the oil companies, they made the best. They made money off that. There's $260 billion of liabilities in, of, of abandoned and uh, oil wells. Uh, tremendous amount of cleanup has to be done. The oil companies want the public to, to pay for that. And of course, as soon as they stop making money in Canada, they're going to leave and leave the mess to Albertans and Canadians to clean up. And that is not right. Uh, I, I would basically agree with you on that one, Gordon. I think that that is a issue that has been kicked down the can uh, and down the road uh, for far too long. And part of it, let's be clear here, is that uh, within the Canadian Constitution, uh, energy, uh, natural resources, including energy, fall under provincial jurisdiction. And the Alberta government has been, we'll call it oil and gas friendly uh, for many, many decades, basically giving oil and gas whatever it wants. And it has never been, uh, it has never had a regulator that wasn't captured to some degree that basically gave oil and gas all that it wanted. I, I have no question, no argument from me that we need to be, we have need to have more urgency. So there's, but there's two models here that have come up in our discussion. Now, one is the, the war mobilization, war footing model that you have argued for and, and uh, folks who uh, are interested in, the, in a more fulsome discussion of this. I interviewed Seth Klein, who uh, earlier this year wrote a book about how Canada should do this and sort of set a blueprint for uh, how it could be done, basically in the same argument that, that Gordon did. And so you can go back and, and listen to that, that podcast. And then there's the other side of the argument, which I took uh, with Seth and now I'm taking with, with Gordon, where I argued that the, the policies, a, policy, a suite of policies that includes carbon pricing and uh, other sorts of industrial policies and uh, that all of those together 
could get us to where we need to without doing this, you know, uh, putting Canada's economy on a war mobilization, you know, war footing to deal with climate. And I think we, you and I would agree on the sense of urgency just on a different policy prescription or, or, or strategy here. But I, I want you, when you talk about winding down the oil sands, and I understand that, and there are others in Canada arguing for that to Zipporah Berman, for instance, the Vancouver climate activist, there are others. But I, but you didn't address uh, my sort of the central one of the central points of my my argument, which is the oil sands can, can be converted from producing bitumen for fuel to bitumen for material production, and then of course you wouldn't want to wind it down because now it it has a lot more value. A, new, a white paper came out recently from Alberta Innovates, the provincial innovation agency, saying that. If you take, uh, you get thirty dollars a barrel of, of uh, thirty dollars of value per barrel is created when you turn it into fuel. Two hundred and thirty-one dollars if you turn it into carbon fiber, and then some lesser amounts if you turn it into asphalt binder and car activated carbon and other products. So there's a lot more value to be had out of not burning this stuff uh, that could create jobs, could create a whole new industry making carbon fiber in Alberta. That argues against winding the oil sands down. What's what's your what's your response to that I, argument? I I think that there are a lot of possibilities with carbon fiber. I think that would be a very great use of the of the oil sands uh, if we could do that. Uh, from my understanding, is that you would only need about five percent of the present day production. Uh, of of uh, oil sand production to to do that carbon fiber. I think it's way way less. So so it, well maybe not wind down the whole industry. Maybe wind it down to ninety to by ninety five percent. But it's important even if we have uh, continue to produce bitumen for carbon fiber and producing things that are of use. We still have to look at the um, uh, environmental impacts of those. We have to look at uh, the natural gas that is burned to se separate the sand from the oil. We have to look at the local um, environmental impacts. Uh, so they, they would be similar to what they are now. Um, but, you know, I think you're talking about uh, scaling down um, to uh, something like 95% of the current production uh, to just keep up that. So I, I agree that that. Um, uh, that that's this could be a, the, one of the main industries in the future of Alberta. It could be very promising, and why why not do it? So yes, I am uh, at least uh, guardedly uh, supportive, guardedly in terms of it's we've got to do it in an environmentally good way. But otherwise, yes, I would support it. But that here's an area where even though we may not differ on all the details of this, I think you and I can agree that Alberta does need to come forward with an energy transition strategy. So that's the a strategy where we talk about, you know, what are we gonna do in, in a low carbon world? How is oil and gas fit in? How do other industries fit in? What are we, yes. how do we gonna meet our climate? Uh, sorry, uh, how do we take the opportunities of an electrifying world, a low carbon world? How do we yeah. uh, yes. uh, take advantage of those opportunities? 
And then on the, the other side, we need a climate plan. The, when the uh, UCP won in 2019, the first thing they did was throw out the NDP's climate leadership plan. And they've never had a, a climate plan since. They've, they've dismantled many of the initiatives like the Energy Efficiency Alberta, and they, they weakened the uh, industrial emitters plan, uh, turning it into something called TIER, uh, that is uh, for the oil sands, uh, much less effective uh, than the uh, NDP uh, uh, industrial emitter plan was. So I think what the first thing we need uh, out of Alberta is a, 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 an up-to-date climate plan coupled with an, uh, a forward-looking energy transition plan and research around that so we can, we can have some data, we can have some analysis, so we can talk about, well, how much of the current production would be needed for carbon fiber and all these other products yeah. that could be? Is it 5%, 50%? Who, we don't know at this point. We're kind of shooting in the dark. And it's too important going, the, the issues around this are too important to the competitiveness and the climate crisis to leave this to by, you know, by guess and by golly. Uh, so I think you and I would agree with on that point, would we? Definitely. We need to plan for the future. The, the world is getting off carbon and Alberta uh, should not go down with the ship. Uh, Alberta's gotta have a future oriented economy and they've got to figure out, okay, so what are we going to do? We're, we're you know, uh, what kind of industries can we have? Albertans are very well-educated people, very resourceful um, and flexible. And, but we've got to, the oil companies, at least a lot of them, are just trying to hang on as long as they can. And then what will happen if you do that is that they will, when the world starts saying, no, we're not going to do this, and um, the you know that the, the industry falls then the and the communities the workers fall off a cliff we need a plan to transition and we need a, a discussion with the communities with the oil workers in a similar way to what happened to the the coal workers who uh produced the, the communities that produce coal for, for uh, electricity generation the government went in and and said what what should we do here and and we need that same kind of thing so absolutely there has to there, there, we should, we we've got to concentrate on what can Alberta do, uh, you know, and and how can we um, be part of the new economy that is developing, the new low carbon economy. Now here's an interesting point. So one of your recommendations out of your study is that there has to be a just transition strategy. It has to include the winding down of the oil sands and and basically what you what you are. support for for. Uh, oil and gas workers to transition into other areas. Now, this is an interesting political conversation going on in Canada because the oil and gas industry is trying to is is trying to redefine just transition, which I would argue most folks don't mean it in the way you do. They don't mean the winding down of the deliberate winding down, phasing out of a particular industry, uh, in this case, oil and gas. But and the industry is trying to discredit uh, the whole idea of just transition by linking it and saying, well, you know, it's really about dismantling the industry overnight kind of thing. So they're trying to, it's the narrative, they're trying to flip the narrative on this. And you see it all the time in their pronouncements and Tim McMillan and, and, and the CEOs. What I would argue that the just transition absolutely, a strategy is absolutely required for, for workers and for communities and supports and retraining and all of that, and it be bundled in with the 
the energy transition strategy I talked about and a, a renewed climate plan in Alberta. And all three of those are in, in fact required with analysis. That this, his, this is another thing. We don't have enough research and enough uh, studies and reports like when I, I interview uh, uh, US uh, experts all the time, and, you, and the, the volume of work that's being done on these kinds of issues is much greater than it is in Canada and particularly for Alberta, which as again, as I've argued in columns, the road to the, solving the climate crisis in Canada runs through Alberta because of its high emissions in the oil and gas production. We need more of that kind of report. And, and Gordon, I really appreciate uh, you putting this out. I think this is uh, an interesting uh, contribution to the, the conversation in Canada. Uh, as I, as uh, you know, the last 40 minutes, uh, we don't agree on, on everything, but, but we need to advance this conversation and come up with strategies and have the, and have the discussion. This is why I wanted to get you on our podcast is because we're not having the conversation. Whether we agree or not on all the points is not as important as the fact that we're talking. And we yes. need to have more of these kind of conversations across the country and particularly in Alberta. Would you agree with that? Yes, totally. Uh, none of us have all the wisdom. We all have to do this collectively. Um, the, but we've got to, you know, have that focus because th that isn't the focus. That isn't what is being done right now. Yes, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you and to other people. Um, we've, you know, we've got to figure out what, you know, what, what should Alberta look like in 2050? It's interesting that Premier Lougheed, Peter Lougheed, who was the founder uh, really of the, well, of, of the progressive conservative dynasty, he said, Alberta's most important resource is not oil, it's water. He said, I can imagine an Alberta without oil, but I can't imagine an Alberta without water and so he was he, you know here he was somebody and his government was progressive conservative uh you know supported the oil industry but uh wanted to wanted to diversify the economy was very that was very important to him he wanted to save for the transition which was in the heritage fund all anyways we have to think about what will the economy look like in 2050 and how is alberta going to be it can be um uh, a very you know uh a vital a part of it what i worry about is alberta is going to become the fossil fuel belt which is going to look like the rust belt of the u.s midwest and southwestern ontario where the auto industry all those those jobs were lost so just trying to hang on to what what we have you know pray for another oil boom which is uh you know part of has been part of the uh, alberta culture is not the way to go we have to plan for the future a planned transition and a positive vision about what we can do together well i would agree with that and let me wrap up the conversation here gordon and i'm glad you brought up uh premier lohit uh, who uh was uh premier from 72 to 86 i want to say maybe 71 but the he made another point about the oil and gas industry is that albertans need to talk to think like owners and I guess that's the point I'm making about the oil sands is if I'm if I'm an Albertan and I'm an, a part owner of that uh, resource, how do I get the most value out of it that also is consistent with the climate crisis that we've got and and what is the strat what is the strategy there? 
And so we're agreed on that. We need to have a strategy in place to deal with those kinds of things. Thank you very much for this, Gordon. Appreciate your uh, the research you did and the insights you've explained to us today. Thank you. Very, very good to be here. Thank you.